Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City. Uh, Happy to be bringing you another edition of the podcast. Just going to be you and me today, guys, and I hope that's all right. We have had a lot of great feedback on our recent episodes that featured some very interesting and entertaining guests. Uh, I personally recommend you listen to last week's episode with our very own Killing Bird, Derek Tenbush. Uh, I think the hand that he brought to the table was very interesting. It has a lot of inflection points and a lot to consider. Uh, I thought our discussion of that hand was pretty high level as well. And I hope that uh, you will go back and listen to that episode if you haven't done so already. Um, Today, I want to look at a hand uh, that I did not play, but that someone else played on day one of the main event. Uh, The World Series of Poker main event, that is, of course, uh, this year, 2019, day 1A. I'm going to start logging some hands that I find interesting from the uh, Poker Go records of the the broadcast. The ESPN episodes haven't been released yet because they're still doing the weekly, uh, I guess, more casual viewers enjoy those one-hour episodes they do, I think, on Tuesday nights. Um, so with that in mind, we'll be looking at the uh, Poker Go episodes while we still have access to those. Um, so yeah, I have an interesting hand that I found from day one of that tournament. Uh, as well, I want to get into a hand that was sent to me from a listener in Australia that I think you guys will find Interesting. I think it brings up a few questions. Um, But yeah, before we get to all that, I want to bring up some poker news. A couple of things were announced this week. The Rio has been sold to a New York-based real estate group. And at the same time, it was announced that the World Series of Poker will again take place there at the Rio in the year 2020. So for all the speculation this summer, many of us even getting somewhat sentimental because over the years we've developed, I guess what you could call a love-hate relationship with that particular property. Um, We all have so many memories of playing in the WSOP there every summer. It's been there now, I think, for 12 years. Um, So we were all thinking, you know, speculating about where it would take place next year and... Uh, just a lot of, well, we're going to have memories of this place. Many poker players with the idea that it was going to be blown up. That was the rumor that was circulating back in June, that the uh, Rio was going to be sold and promptly destroyed. But this week it was announced by the powers that be, Seth Polanski and you know those guys, basically came out and said that the WSOP will take place again at the Rio for at least this year and probably 2021 
as well. So love to get your thoughts on that. Is it a bit of a tease thinking that we're going to have a whole new venue for next year's World Series? Is it too early to even start thinking about where you'll be next summer as we just now started uh, this fall? (laughs) I don't know. For me, as soon as the World Series of Poker ends, I start thinking about the next one because it's kind of an obsession of mine, as most of our listeners know all too well. Uh, So that's one thing that happened. Another big announcement since our last recording is that the PCA is no more. Uh, There was... One, at one point in time, many of you will remember this, when online poker here in the USA was booming uh, prior to Black Friday, the PCA was absolutely huge. Uh, the Bahamas, very, very close to America for those who are geographically challenged or based in a faraway land like Australia, where you might not realize that the Bahamas are just, you know, what, not even an hour from Florida. So many Americans loved going to the PCA. It was a very easy place for us to get to. And of course, back then we had sites like PokerStars allowing us to enter satellites. And so there was a time when the PCA was one of the most successful tournament series in the world, maybe even second only to the main event one year, uh, the World Series, I should say, one year. Uh, of course, that is no more. The PCA is over. PokerStars announcing just last week that they are doing away with the PCA. And I can't help but think that it has something to do with my performance in the comedy show at this year's PCA. I think after that, they pretty much determined that we just need to shut this whole place down. Uh, <laughs> kidding aside, it's kind of bad news for... The Bahamas, which is still somewhat reeling from the uh, hurricane disaster that uh, just went through there a couple of weeks ago. Um, And I know that the uh, Atlantis property in particular usually enjoyed a nice boost in uh, customers uh, during the PCA. And many of those customers were relatively well-off tourists from around the world who came to Nassau, the Bahamas, for Paradise Island, I should say, for the PCA. And last year, in particular, the Poker Stars Players Championship, that was kind of uh, a big deal. That was a a ringing success, a rousing success, um, no matter how you slice it. And they've actually decided to continue the PSPC, this year, but it will take place next year in Barcelona, I want to say. So around the time that they announced the PSPC would would take place again a year from now in Barcelona, they also announced that the reason it won't be in the Bahamas is because they're no longer going to be including the Bahamas as a stop. Um, For many players... Now, at this point, PokerStars doesn't really cater to the U.S., as we know. Of course, they have customers in uh, Canada, Mexico, and other places that are near the U.S., but the bulk of PokerStars' business comes from Europe now and pretty much has since PokerStars ended operations on Black Friday. 
here in America. So with that in mind, it does kind of make sense to discontinue stops that are so far away from Europe as part of the EPT or the Pokestars Championship or whatever they're calling their tour at this point. But it is kind of an end of a, of a legacy, of an era. Uh, many stars were born um, at the PCA over the years. And looking back on it, a lot of fond memories uh, for many, many players. But, you know, nothing gold can stay, as Robert Frost once said. And so onward and upward. I have to say, though, many players that I spoke with uh, this past January down in the Bahamas were, were complaining about the venue, about how it's kind of hard to get to, how you're basically a prisoner at the Atlantis where a bottle of water costs $18,000 or something like that. Um, even if you manage to score one of the rare complimentary rooms for the tournament series, they still charge you a $50 per day resort fee and, you know, poker players, even the ones that have a lot of money, are notoriously careful with their travel expenditures. So I think many players didn't like to travel so far from Europe to get to the Bahamas and also didn't really appreciate uh, being ravaged, <laughs> as it were, each and every January as they uh, arrived in the Bahamas and were greeted by ridiculous price points in pretty much all goods and services. So uh, some will not be shedding too many tears over PokerStars' decision to discontinue the PokerStars' Caribbean adventure. Anyway, I always thought it was a funny name because the Bahamas are not in the Caribbean. They're actually in the Atlantic Ocean. So it was always a poorly named tournament series from day one uh yeah although someone did point out that i think the original pca took place on a cruise ship and so in that case that cruise ship probably did go through the caribbean so last order of business before we get to the strategy segment i want to let you guys know that we should all be tweeting at tuck on sports that's david tuckman's twitter handle Please tweet him and let him know that I told you to congratulate him. Uh, it is now official. He has locked up our season win totals wager. As of the time of this recording, the Orioles have five games left and they've only got 52 wins. So even if they manage to win the rest of their games, uh, the final win total will be under 58 and a half. And I have already written and sent a large check to our friend David Tuckman. So uh, it's been a fun ride. It definitely made the baseball season much more interesting to me as an Orioles fan than it otherwise would have been. Um, of course, I could do without the trash talk and rubbing it in, <laughs> but <laughs> I have to remember my friend David is from Queens and people there are not known for being sportsmanlike. So anyway, definitely want to send him congratulations. So give him a tweet at Tuck on Sports and let him know uh, that I told you to congratulate him on basically crushing my dreams 
of the Orioles winning at least 59 games this year. So, enough about that. Let's get into some strategy, shall we? The first hand I want to do today is actually an email that I received from a listener named Paul Joyce, and I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, Good day, Clayton. Paul here from Australia. I love listening to your podcast, especially the way you analyze hands. Paul, thank you so much, first of all. Uh, uh, Any email that starts off with a nice compliment like that is much more likely to be read on the air. I've been trying to take your advice and put it in practice for my game. I love poker, but I don't play a lot due to work slash family commitments. Maybe one tourney every six weeks. I would love your thoughts on this hand from a tourney last night. I've been mulling over it and need another point of view. So let's talk about the hand. Here it is. It's a $200 buy-in at the Star Casino in Sydney. Now, some of you may be surprised to, to learn that I've actually been to the Star Casino in Sydney. Uh, Maybe about three years ago, I actually had a couple of gigs um, doing stand-up around Australia, and a couple of them were in Sydney, three days apart. So in between, I got to play in some of the cash games in Sydney. First of all, let me tell you, if you've never been to Sydney, Australia, it is a world-class, absolutely beautiful city, Um, amazing people, I love Australian people. They're so nice, very cool. Um, The casino is gorgeous. Everyone is quiet. So if you're used to Vegas and people like winning money and screaming at the top of their lungs, you won't hear much of that in Australia. It's very refined and civilized. The poker room is as silent as a library, um, which kind of surprised me because the Australian players that I've seen on television were mostly loud and uh, boisterous, and I I just didn't see that either in Sydney nor in Melbourne for the most part. Uh, So the play in that casino, now this was probably three years ago when I was there, uh, and I've only ever been there once. I played probably a total of 20 hours uh, cash games in the the couple of days that I had to, uh, to spend there, maybe 15 hours, about that. And I could tell you the patterns that I noticed were that players were generally loose, um, a little more passive than we are in the States, and no one seems to believe each other. So bluffing in Australia at least three years ago was not recommended. Now, obviously, everyone is is learning about game theory and, and poker is getting tougher and tougher, but the strategy that I would have recommended three years ago based on what I saw in the mid-stakes 5-10 cash games there where I would just recommend make a hand and and bet it big. So that's kind of what, you know, for those who haven't been to Australia and are kind of wondering what it's like to be playing in Paul's uh, casino, that was kind of my overall impression. Not that the players were bad, but that they were generally loose and they, they tend to be a little sticky uh, post-flop. So here's the situation. It's a $200 buy-in, no limit hold'em, turbo tournament. Now, uh, in many countries, 
a turbo torment has no ante and this one is is like that it's 200 and 400 with no ante in level five he says they got 180 runners to start and they started with a 10,000 chip starting stack uh right now paul is in the big blind with 8500 so let's talk about that right away he's got 21 big blinds or as i like to say his m is about 15. now notice that if there had been an ante in play his m would be eight suppose they had a, a big blind ante then there would be a thousand in the pot and his M would be eight and a half because he's got 8,500, 200, 400, and 400. As we talked about M last week, it's the ratio between your stack and the preflop pot. So in this particular hand, Paul has an M of about 15, just under 15 actually. Uh, closer to 14 if I'm going to be exact, and I should. So rather than 14, his M would be eight and a half. And that's a really big difference. So for those who are just used to counting big blinds, I'm just trying to point out how uh, big of a difference that ante can make and why M becomes a much more accurate representation of your standing in the tournament. So uh, we're in the big blind holding king of hearts, 10 of clubs, under the gun plus two, or as I usually call it, third position, raises to 800 with 14,000 behind. So it folds around to Paul in the big blind with King 10, and it costs him 400 more to call the min raise. So with an M of 14 holding King 10, I'm not too excited to call, and I definitely don't want to raise but I can't fold because the pot odds are just too good. Uh, you know, we're getting, well, look at it. There's 800 plus 600 is 1400 already in the pot. And it only costs me 400 more to call. So getting three and a half to one with uh, King 10 in the big blind, I think, calling is totally uh is actually mandatory uh, the problem is the description of villain so let's listen to that the villain is a solid player doesn't get involved too often and usually has good cards when he does likes to keep pots small so with king 10 offsuit versus this guy's range i think we can pretty much uh, rest assured that our King 10 is no good. So we're looking to hit this flop pretty hard. It comes 10, 9, 7 with two hearts, the 10 of hearts, the 9 of hearts, and the 7 of spades. And again, we have King 10 and we have the King of hearts, King of hearts, 10 of clubs. So it's a very good flop for Paul. We've got top pair with a king kicker and a backdoor flush draw. Um, we are out of position 
And here it says villain bet. So I'm assuming, obviously, Paul must have checked to the villain. So, yeah, I mean, for many players, they don't, they just don't have a leading range on any flop. Uh, if you told me that you like to lead certain flops and you would include when you flop top pair in that leading range, I have no problem with it. And also, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I was reading something about how uh, computers have become adept at beating multiple players. Um, as, as many of you are familiar with Poker Snowy and some of the other uh, artificial intelligence poker theory simulators out there, uh, they were already able to beat the best in the world in heads up, no limit. But when it came to multi-way pots, the computers were having trouble figuring out the game with all those variables. Well, they've gotten much better, and the computers that are now uh, experts in playing multi-way have actually determined that donk leading should be a much bigger part of a strategy than it is for almost all of us that are playing today. So all that to say, uh, as the computers figure out things that humans can't, computers are determining that we should be overbetting a lot more and a lot bigger than we are. And that was one big thing that was a takeaway from, from this uh, experiment. I think it was a college-funded game theory, artificial intelligence thing, similar to some of the others that have been out there, MIT or whatever. Uh, yeah, so we should be betting much larger. And um, when we overbet, sometimes these computers were determining that betting three times the pot was correct. So talk about a polarized range, huh? But also leading into the razor, uh, particularly in a heads-up pot like this one. So if Paul had said he saw that he flopped so good and he just wanted to bet to protect his hand, I would have no problem with that. But for many players, and I'm sure for most of our listeners, they just don't have a donk leading range on the flop in these situations. And that's also fine. So many, yeah, actually many of the solvers would, would also agree with that, including PO. Uh, you basically always check to the razor. So in this case, Paul checks and villain bets 800 into the 1800 pot. So what to do here with King 10 Villain is betting less than half the pot. So it's a small bet that doesn't look like it's designed to protect his hand against all the draws. I mean, we could easily have a queen jack, king queen, any two hearts, hands like nine eight, seven eight, ten eight should all be in our range, seven six, nine six. All those hands should be in our range. Hands with uh, drawing potential, maybe uh, a pair with a flush draw, a pair with a straight draw, or some combination, a gut shot with two over cards, uh, or a hand like the one we have, which is just a top pair with, with backdoor possibilities. Um, I would think that Villain would want to protect his hand by betting bigger. So making the same bet on the flop as he did pre-flop 
doesn't really reveal much about villain's range, but I think many players would bet larger to try to protect their hand or at least uh, force me to pay or even commit in order to protect my hand. Now, bear in mind, we've already put in 10% of our stack pre-flop. We start with 8,500 and we put 800 in. We've only got 7,600 behind. And now there is 24, 2,600. Yeah, 2,600 in the pot after the villain bets 800. So we've only got three times the current pot in our stack. So uh, the question is, can we fold? Let's ask that question first. Let's explore folding. Now remember, we're thinking of this villain in terms of he's solid. He doesn't get involved too often. He has good cards when he does. He likes to keep the pot small. So we're talking about a solid player who's raised from early middle position. Uh, third position. So it's it's close, but I don't I don't think I can fold for eight hundred. I think my play here would be to call and fold if he puts the heat on and I don't improve on the turn. This is what Paul decided to do. I originally put his range on two high cards, so drawing to a straight. This flop hits me better than it hits him, and it hit me very well. I don't want him to get any free cards, so I raise it to 2300 Okay, so let's talk about this analysis here. Paul, what I like what you're doing is that you're trying to put your opponent on a range and think in terms of whose range the flop hits harder. Um I'm just not necessarily on board with your assessment because we think about it. This guy raised from third position under the gun plus two. Uh, how can we be so sure that he's on two high cards? Uh, he certainly has the sets of tens, sets of nines, sets of sevens, as well as large pairs like kings, queens, aces. All of those hands should be in our opponent's range. Um, now, when he bets 800, maybe you can take some of those hands out based on your observations of how he plays when he has a draw or how he plays when he's trying to protect his overpair or something like that. But I just am not so sure that we can be uh, confident that our opponent has mostly two high cards in his range. Also... We have the King of Hearts, which is one of the best cards for him to continuation with, continuation bet with if he doesn't have a pair yet. So in other words, if our opponent has something like Ace-King with, with a King of Hearts, he should be continuation betting this board a lot uh, and just hoping that we have nothing. Although it's hard for us to have nothing because we either have a gut shot or we have a pair it's just very, there are very few hands that this board, this wet, wet board doesn't hit. So it seems unlikely to me that villain will be able to get us to fold for 800 very often. And 
if he's a solid player, he probably knows that, and therefore he probably wants to get some action here, especially for this sizing. 800 into 1800 is a very small sizing, right? So that just brings up the question, can we push him off of a better hand with this raise? So remember, Paul makes it 2300 And I'm questioning that decision because at that point, you've put in 800 pre-flop and now 2300 on the flop. So you've put in 3100 of your 8500 stack, effectively committing yourself to this pot with top pair. What are you supposed to do if your opponent goes all in at that point? I mean, it's very, very hard to be sure enough in your read that you can fold top pair after putting in basically a, like over a third of your stack. So that's why I'm not a big fan of this raise. I think calling allows us to kind of evaluate on the turn. Say the board pairs the sevens and not with a heart on the on the turn. Then we can check and if our opponent turns the heat up, we can we can consider folding top pair then um, because there aren't that many players that would double barrel a board like this without having a pair of tens beat. There just aren't. Uh, not solid players who raise from early position. So I'm thinking if he's solid, he probably doesn't have hands we can beat like 9-8, 7-8. Like he's probably folding those hands from relatively early position. And so his range is either a pair uh, and most of the pairs that he should be playing this way would be uh, big pairs. Um, so it's just hard for for me to see him betting twice with something like ace-jack. Maybe ace-jack would bet twice though because ace-jack has a gut shot. Um, so let's say ace queen with no heart probably would check on the turn. So with those kinds of hands, we can get some information and maybe be able to play pot control a little bit and check call the river if our opponent chooses to check, check the turn. Uh, by raising, we don't give him that opportunity and we put ourselves in a rough position no matter what our opponent does unless he folds and when he folds we had him beat anyway and we don't really want him to fold hands that we are beating so i really don't like the logic of we don't want our opponent to get any free cards so we raise it to 2300 i mean what free cards are we worried about um if our opponent has ace king uh, he's got three outs, right? Only the aces because we have the king. Um, yeah, I guess ace-queen in particular has six outs against us, but some of those outs give us a flush draw, don't they? Um, yeah, there just aren't that many two-overcard type hands that we need to quote-unquote protect our king-10 against. So personally, I would just accept the good price he's offering and call with the intention of check evaluating on the turn. Um, many turns will give us 
more equity. Uh, I'm thinking like a deuce of hearts will give us a flush draw. Obviously, another king, or another a king or another ten would give us two pair or trips. And at that point, you're certainly not going to fold. Uh, you need to think in terms of your stack and how much of it is already in the middle. The more of your stack that's already in the middle, the more you need to be committed to the pot and not fold a hand as strong as king 10 on 10, 9, 7. So if you don't want to fold, you shouldn't be raising. Um, I think calling is better. So I raise it to 2300 Paul says. He almost immediately goes all in. What do I do, Clayton? Okay. So as played, and I always hate when I'm discussing a hand with another player, and that player says as played because it's kind of like saying, I never would have played this hand the way you did, Clayton. But if I did and I were in this position, which again, I wouldn't be because I would never have played this hand that, that way. Uh <laughs> Um, I would do this as played. I think we need to call. Um, it's not a great spot to be in, but remember we started this tournament with 10,000. It's a turbo. Um, we have a pretty short stack. I'm assuming by level five of a turbo, some of these 180 runners are gone. Maybe as many as 40 or 50 of them are gone. Um, and we need to, find a call here with King 10. Um, we could well be behind, but we raised it to 2300, effectively committing ourselves to the pot. Now you're never pot committed when you're bluffing, but you're not bluffing, Paul. You have King 10 on a 10 high board and you even have backdoor hearts to go with it. So I believe it's time to make the call and see whatever we're about to see. Note that we're not even doing that bad against pocket aces, pocket queens. I mean, we're not happy to see those hands, obviously, but we have substantial equity against those hands with our top pair, king kicker. So we have five outs against pocket queens because we can win with another 10 or uh, any of the kings. Uh, and, and that doesn't even include the backdoor heart possibilities, which is good for like an extra 6%, by the way. When you flop three hearts, uh, two more hearts come about 6% of the time. So that's not nothing. It's also not enough to feel confident about calling here. But once we raise, I think we're committed and we just have to call it off. So what do you guys think? Um, do you like the way I played this hand? Do you like the way Paul played this hand? Let's hear about it. This is actually, I think, the first listener hand that I've ever read on the uh, podcast. I just think it brought up some interesting points. You know, we talked about M last time. If you have an M of 14, your decisions, uh, well, let's just say your actions need to be rather decisive. And I think that by raising the flop, Paul has made a decisive action and he's committed himself to the pot. So once you do that, you have to call. Well, I went into the tank for a few minutes, put him on either a Queens or Jacks type of hand, or perhaps Ace-10, or at worst, a flush draw. Okay. I folded and was left with a relatively 
small stack. Would love your thoughts. Okay, Paul. Um, I, I think I gave a lot of my my thoughts already, but I think it's interesting that earlier in the hand, you put his range on two high cards, drawing to a straight, and you felt like you needed to protect your hand against that straight draw by raising. And then when he shoved, you changed your read to queens, jacks, or maybe ace, 10, or at worst, a flush draw. So now, yeah, his shove is pretty strong, but I think many players would make that play with some hands you can beat, like you mentioned here, the flush draw. Um, Perhaps he got a little out of line with ace, nine, ace, seven of hearts, um, or it could be a pure bluff. The problem is we're so committed that calling sucks because we're going to be behind a lot, but folding sucks because we've already put in a third of our of our stack. So you put yourself in a in a tough spot where both decisions are are kind of awful for you. I folded and was left with a relatively small stack. Right, you have a small stack because you you raised to twenty three hundred. So to me, the, I think the worst part of the hand was the raise on the flop. You open that door for him to shove on you. And, you know, I've been to Australia. I know that even players you think are pretty solid are capable of doing this as a bluff. And I think once you are committed to a pot, you need to call with a hand as strong as King-10. And bear in mind, it's not just functioning as a bluff catcher. You have a certain amount of equity with King-10. And you because you made that raise, you kind of priced yourself in to calling. So if we look at the math here... Yeah, let's do the math real quickly, guys. At the time when the flop hit and the villain bet 800 into the 1800 pot, there was then 2600 in the pot. And when we make our raise, we've built the pot up to 4,900. For simplicity, let's call it 5,000. And then we're leaving ourselves only 50, well, we're we're rounding here. So let's call it 5,500 behind. We've put in 3,000 of our 8,500, leaving us with 5,500 behind. So at the time when we make this raise, there is 5,000 in the pot and we only have 5,500 behind. When Villain goes all in, he first has to get his 800 up to 2,300. So let's go ahead and add 1,500 more, which brings the pot to 6,500 and then he shoves for another 5,500 to put us all in. So that means there's 12,000 in the pot and it only costs 5,500 for us to call. Again, I rounded up just to kind of make the math a little easier, but it's it's within a couple of hundred. Bottom line, you're, you have top pair and you're getting like two and a half to one on a call. I just don't think you can fold, especially not 
with uh, the the backdoor hearts and the possibility that your opponent could sometimes be bluffing. And even when he's not, you're not a two and a half to one dog against a lot of these hands that you think he could have. Uh, the worst scenario is for him to have ace 10 with the ace of hearts. But when he has these other hands that you mentioned, you're actually in, in fine shape. Uh, relatively fine shape considering the price you're getting, which is very attractive. So a lot of these medium to short stack all-in situations and tournaments come down to uh, pot odds and just the likelihood that you're absolutely crushed. I mean, well, obviously the worst case scenario, I should say, is when your opponent has a set, right? Because you're drawing virtually dead versus a set. But assuming he does not have a set, uh, then you you have plenty of uh, outs to make the call here. And you could have avoided this situation had you not raised on the flop. So those are my thoughts. I love to hear what you guys think. Do you like that Paul chose to raise on the flop and kind of give himself a sense of where he's at? And then when he kind of gets his answer by his opponent going all in, would you be comfortable folding a hand like King-10, such a strong hand for the situation, um, just to preserve your stack and live to fight another day? Now remember, it's a turbo, and now you're going to leave yourself with 5,500, and the blinds are currently 200, 400. They're probably going up to 300, 600 next. So you're going to have nine big blinds in very short order. So please keep that in mind as you consider what to do in Paul's situation. All right, let's get to one more. Okay, so here's a hand from day 1A of the 2019 WSOP main event. Uh, Late in the day, I think it's level four, 300, 600 with a 600 ante. Those are your blinds. Um, It's a big multi-way pot that starts with a British player named Moss. I don't have first names, guys, sorry. Uh, It opens to 1300, so just over a min raise and gets called by Alex Keating in the cutoff. Uh, A player named Whiteman, American, uh, calls on the button. And in the small blind, it's another Australian uh, who's going to be the hero in this hand. We're going to be Doyle. His, His last name is Doyle. He's actually the chip leader at the table, and he's in the small blind with the queen of hearts, ten of hearts, and the big blind also calls. Now, the stacks, in, in remember, this year in the main event, we started with 60,000 chips. Uh, of the five players that see this flop, the big blind is the shortest stack with 48,000 behind. And uh, Hero, Doyle, the Australian player, has 94,000. So uh, no one is a short stack and we've all got plenty of wiggle room, which probably accounts for a min raise getting so much action, uh, even though the min raise itself came from early position. So I don't want to tell you what everyone had. We're just going to play this hand from the perspective of our Australian, ostensibly professional Australian player uh, named Doyle. 
So I guess it's Australian today, Australia Day here on the TPE podcast. So with Queen Ten of Hearts, we call. Uh, and then the big blind calls as well. So five players to the flop, 7,100 chips in the middle. And the flop comes 10 of clubs, seven of clubs, tray of diamonds. So 10, seven tray with two clubs. And we are first to act in the small blind, holding the queen 10 of hearts. What would you do? Uh, most players would check to the razor, as I just mentioned, as we spoke about the other hand. Actually, I picked both of these hands today, not because they both involve Australian people, but because I think that some of the same themes will come up in this hand as did in our first hand today. Uh, I mentioned that the computers have determined we should be leading more and not always checking to the razor, particularly in multi-way pots. This pot has five players in it, and Doyle leads into the whole field with an overbet, 10,100. Remember, the pot was 7,100, and he comes firing for 10,100. Um, what is the logic of this bet? We're trying to define our hand. I think if Doyle gets raised, he's planning to fold his queen 10, even though he's overbet the flop. Making a smaller bet and getting raised, uh, you have to kind of hang on a lot with your top pair types hands because so much of the raising hands will be draws. Any two clubs, hands like 9-8, something like 6-5 of clubs that has a flush draw with a gut shot, uh, and so on and so on. So if we make a more quote-unquote normal bet in this situation and we get raised, it's very hard for us to know what we should do, particularly from out of position as we are in the small blind. Um, so I kind of like overbetting here for that reason. Uh, I think that if he gets raised now, it probably won't be a flush draw because the bet is so big that most of our opponents would be essentially pot committed. And I think players are loath to commit themselves with a flush draw on day one of the main event. I just don't see it happening that much. I feel like Doyle's bet is showing a lot of strength. He's actually representing a much bigger hand than just top pair with a queen kicker. But that's what we have, and that's what we did. Everyone folds to the button. Uh, an older American player who seems to me like he's probably an amateur, maybe a businessman of some kind. He's kind of in his 50s. He's got the baseball cap. Um, he looks like he's been around poker a lot, but he doesn't he doesn't give off the air of a professional, at least watching a few hands that he played on Poker Go. Uh, so I could be wrong. Maybe he's been a grinder for years, but my guess would be that he owns a trucking service or uh, works in insurance or something. Anyway, he's playing the main event and he makes the call. So let's try to range Whiteman. If you overbet with 
top pair queen kicker on 10-7 Trey and got action from a player like the one I just described, what kind of hand do you think he would have? Well, for me, my answer to my question would be, I think that he would have a very strong flush draw, something like ace-king of clubs, uh, probably not slow playing a set, although by the time it folds to Whiteman, there are no players left to act. In other words, if, if we fold, this hand is over. So Whiteman is not worried about protecting his hand versus anyone but the original better, who was the small blind, who donk led. Remember, Moss has already folded, was the original razor preflop. So with that in mind, Whiteman is not worried about someone waking up behind him and doing anything. So he knows when he calls, we get to see the turn. Uh, it feels like it should be a draw of some kind. Um, he probably would raise, players like him tend to raise with their sets in these spots. So even if he had a hand like pocket trays for three of a kind, I think he would raise with it. Just concerned that uh, Doyle's overbet could have been made with a hand like ace king of clubs or... Uh, any kind of flush draw, 8-9. And this pot has now gotten so big that I think in Whiteman's shoes, he's probably thinking, Whiteman, that is, is probably thinking, uh, let's protect our hand and raise. So I would discount the possibility that he's slow playing a set on this fairly dry but somewhat dangerous board. Um, with five players, it's likely someone has a flush draw. So if Whiteman doesn't have one, he has to be worried that Doyle does and would probably protect his biggest hands. Um, he could have something like what we have, a pair of 10s. I don't think he'd be fooling around with something like pocket 8s or pocket 5s. Any pair below top pair should pretty much always fold to this very large flop bet. Uh, so it's a bit polarizing and when Whiteman calls, there aren't that many hands he could have. I think it should usually be a flush draw, possibly with straight possibilities, something like that. Um, so, yeah, he does call. And now there's 27,300 in the pot heading to the turn. And Whiteman has 74K remaining in his stack. And remember... Uh, Doyle, hero, started as the chip leader at the table, but he doesn't have Whiteman covered by a lot. This is the two biggest stacks on the table here, and he's only got Whiteman covered by like 7,000. So with that in mind, neither player is using a stack to try to bully the other. The turn card is the seven of hearts. Pairing the board and Doyle has a decision. Do we want to bet queen 10 again? Well, I mean, we overbet the flop. So if we bet again, we're pretty much throwing pot control out the window. It really just depends on what we make of Whiteman's call. Sure. If you think he's got a flush draw or most likely some kind of flush draw or flush draw, straight draw, combo, maybe like jack eight of clubs, something like that. Um, 
but yeah, does this player even make a call with those kind of speculative hands on the button? I think he does, but not necessarily. Uh, then should we bet again to try to protect our hand? Are we at all worried that we might be beat? Well, he could certainly have king 10, and then it's trying to turn queen 10 into a bluff if we bet again versus that particular hand. Uh, I suppose Whiteman could have a worse 10, Jack 10, 10, 9 uh, are certainly possible. I think it's close. I think that I like betting here, but it is definitely close. This is a dicey situation. This hand is already, this pot is already way too big for Queen 10. But given that it's pretty likely that our opponent is on a draw, it is now correct to try to protect our hand or at least price him out of calling profitably with that draw. So I would probably put in something like 19,000 here, uh, which would basically put uh, a river. If we want to make a river shove, it would be about 80%. Uh, Whiteman's stack would then be about 80% of the pot on the river. So I think that's a good sizing. Doyle goes a little smaller. I'm really not going to quibble with it, but he puts in 15,000 into the 27,000 pot. So it's still more than half the pot and definitely uh, denying Whiteman if he has some kind of flush draw with a hand like ace, eight of clubs. I think it's a, it's a good enough bet to deny the exact correct odds, but it's pretty close especially if Whiteman could ever know that his aces are also live uh, live outs, I mean. So it's a little too small, but I, I'm like I said, I'm not going to really quibble with this bet at all. 15K into 27.3, and Whiteman, after a time, makes the call. Now how do we feel in Doyle's shoes, sitting here with Queen 10, and this older gentleman that is a fairly solid player, has now called two very large bets. Well, one very large bet and then one relatively large bet on 4th Street. I'm not sure that I like my Queen-10 anymore. Do you? Well, the pot is 57,300 and our opponent has about 60K behind. So he's got a little bit more than the pot behind. And the river comes the four of spades for a final board of 10... Seven, tray, seven, four. No flush. Do we bet again? I mean, we could shove and try to get maximum value for queen 10, but what can really call? I mean, wouldn't even jack 10 usually fold with this much heat? So I don't think we have a value bet here. I think the play here is to check and hope to get a free showdown. Uh, instead, we do check, and now Whiteman, who's just been pretty much calling since the very beginning of the hand, bets a healthy 31K into the 57.3 pot, giving us 2.8 to one on a call. Well, the first question is, why does he bet 31,000 instead of the 59,000 that he has behind? 60 yeah he had actually I said 60 before he actually has 59k behind on the river 
So why doesn't he bet at all? Uh, if he had a real monster here, I think he would have bet at all. Uh, something like a seven, right? Maybe if he had like a seven somehow, um, probably wouldn't have called the flop. Uh, it's just hard to put Whiteman on a hand here. In Doyle's shoes, any hand that Whiteman is betting for value should have gone all in. In other words, if he has a king 10, he's never going to bet it for value. I've already built this pot so much myself with my flop over bet and my healthy turn bet. Everyone's just going to check behind when they just have a 10. And if they have a hand that they should know is good, like a 7 or better somehow, uh, maybe pocket, I don't know. I don't know. It's very hard to put him on a hand that would that would bet 31,000 and not all in. All the hands that he bets for value should be all in, in my opinion. So what is he betting 31,000? Did I just say that I think all of his value bets should be all in? Well, in that case, our queen 10 is a bluff catcher. Is it a strong enough bluff catcher to make the call here? I think it is. We're getting 2.8 to 1 on a call. Whiteman's bet doesn't make any sense. It's not easy. But we put ourselves in this position by virtue of our very large flop bet with just top pair queen kicker. I think when we check on the river, if Whiteman goes all in, it becomes a very, very hard decision because he could have maybe something like four sevens. <laughs> um, I don't think too many players would value bet top pair here. So what does he have? What does he have? Doyle thinks about it for quite a while. Eventually, I think he just decides there's just too many busted draws in Whiteman's range. And he does make the call getting 2.8 to 1. He calls and Whiteman turns over the ace of clubs, jack of clubs. So he had a pure flush draw with two over cards on the flop and played it passively. Can't blame him for that, especially with that 10K into 7K flop bet. And then it didn't work out for him. And then he knew that the only chance he had of winning the hand was to bet the river. He didn't want to shove because he didn't want to bust the main event on day one. I'm not sure if Doyle would have been able to make the call uh, if Whiteman could have found the, uh, I don't know, the gumption to put in all 59,000 into 57.3 on the river. Maybe he could, maybe he couldn't. But I think betting 31,000 makes it a little too easy, but still not that easy. I kind of like the bet. I just think if you want to bet, you got to go all in and leverage all of your possible fold equity. What hands does Doyle bet twice and then check? I think that when Doyle checks the river, he doesn't have a monster. Uh, so Whiteman probably picked up on that and put him on something like just a top pair type of hand. But now it's hard for Whiteman to represent anything else. And that's the trouble with his bet on the end. Overall, I think Doyle was pretty creative in overbetting the flop. And uh, I think it was good that he was able to find that call. How many of us could make the call 
with just Queen 10 in the main event, knowing that if we lose this pot, we're going to, our 94,000 stack would then be down to like, like 20K with two hours left in day one. So I thought those hands were both interesting. Uh, I'd love to get your feedback. If you have a hand you want me to discuss on the podcast, you can email that hand to radio at claytonfletcher.com. Or actually, you could use poker at claytonfletcher.com as well. That'll be it for this week. If you guys are not subscribers to Tournament Poker Edge, what are you waiting for? For as little as $25 a month, you're going to have access to expert analysis, including Andrew Brokus, who's the author of the best-selling poker book, Play Optimal Poker. He's also a good friend of mine and one of the best players and teachers on earth. Uh, He recently released a series in which he goes over every hand he played in the exact tournament we were just discussing, the 2019 World Series main event, in which, by the way, Andrew finished 125th. So that's a lot of hands to talk through. You can have access to that and so much more for as little as $25 a month. Just visit tournamentpokeredge.com and get your membership started today. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.